Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, I am getting ready to go to New Orleans. I'm leaving on Wednesday. Not sure if I'll be able to record another podcast before I go. So this may be the only one of the week unless something really big happens, in which case I may record one from my hotel room in New Orleans. But generally, I'm pretty busy at that conference. Hopefully, a few of you will be down there. I know I mentioned it a couple of times on my podcast. I don't know. It's probably too late. Uh, to get a last-minute ticket, who knows? But uh, certainly if you're in driving distance of New Orleans, uh, it's pretty easy uh, to get down there. Not really sure the hotel situation, but if you live in New Orleans, you don't need a hotel. So you can sure you can come down to the conference. I'll be there. My family will be there. Uh, we'll have a booth down there. A lot of other good speakers, too, not just me. So looking forward to getting down there, listening to some jazz, eating some uh, Creole cooking Great restaurants, uh, very charming uh, place to be. A lot of action, a lot of fun in New Orleans. Hey, the stock market today for a change was down. The Dow Jones did not set a record. It was down 54 points uh, today. I guess, you know, hard to do that when you got GE, uh, one of your components down 6.34% on the day. GE has been a horrible stock. I mean, I used to describe this years ago as a hedge fund masquerading as a company. I've never been a fan, or at least uh, for a long time, have not been a fan of GE. It's one of those stocks that I've told people to avoid. I've said, you know, if you're going to buy the U.S. stock market, this is just one of the stocks that I've said people should avoid. You know, interestingly enough, a lot of people might not know this, but General Electric is actually the only surviving original member of the Dow. You know, the original Dow Jones included General Electric. In fact, the Dow Jones originally had just 12 companies before it was ultimately expanded to 30. But it is the only one of the original 12 that's still in business as a standalone company. You know, some of the companies have been bought up, uh, and so they've been merged into other companies that still exist. Many of them are foreign. You know, for example, American Tobacco uh, was one of the original companies. Now it's part of Fortune Brands. American Cotton Oil. That's now part of Unilever. So that's, that's, but they don't exist anymore. Same thing, U.S. Rubber, that is owned by Michelin. So another foreign company. U.S. Leather, I mentioned, I think that's the only of the original Dow 12 companies that completely just went out of business. Nobody bought it. I think it was just dissolved. But other names, Tennessee Coal and Iron, uh, North American, National Lead, uh, Lackley Gas, Distilling and Cattle Feeding, Chicago Gas, American Sugar. I mean, these companies don't exist anymore. But that was the Dow Jones, the industrial average back then. So it shows you over long periods of time, a lot of things change. And, you know, companies that can be very popular today, uh, you know, you go 100 years into the future. I mean, how many of the Dow Jones companies today will still be around 100 years from now, will still be standalone separate companies? Or, you know, what will it look like? Will all the companies be different 
than the ones we have today. But, you know, one record that we did set today, it wasn't a new record high, but as of today, this is now the longest streak that the U.S. stock market has had without a 3% correction. The, the record uh, prior to this was set back in 1995, which was kind of early in that bubble, right? That eventually became a very big bubble because the market went up from 1995 all the way through 2000. So I doubt that we're going to have another five years of rally on top of this new record. And there's a lot of other records in low volatility uh, that are being set. Not all-time records, but records that go way back to the dot-com bubble as far as complacency, lack of volatility, uh, you know, just how, how orderly this, this advances, how few things uh, make the market nervous. But there's one thing now that has the potential to cause a short-term decline of more than 3%, and that would be no tax cut, right? If the Republicans announce that they, they're at a deadlock and we're not going to have any tax reform or tax cuts, if that announcement is made, it seems to me that the stock market is going to get hit, right? Because everybody agrees now that that's what's going to happen. I mean, the question is, how much of the rally is going to be surrendered if we don't get a tax cut? But, you know, you've got everybody uh, in Washington, on Wall Street, out there saying that if we don't get this tax cut, the market's going down. And so what does that mean? That means we're getting a tax cut because nobody in the Trump administration wants the market to go down. I mean, after all, the market is now the barometer by which we're measuring the success of the Trump presidency. And of course, by extension, the Republicans, right? The Republicans, if they want to get reelected to their House seats in 2018, the Dow Jones had better be higher than when Trump was elected, because that's their main uh, bragging point, that the stock market is up. You see, you know, we're, this is not about making America great again. It's about making the stock market great again. Not that it wasn't great before Trump was elected, but now the greatness of the stock market goes hand in hand with the greatness of America. So there's no way the Republicans want to let the stock market get clobbered because they failed to deliver the tax cut that now everybody agrees is essential to maintaining the momentum in the market. Donald Trump also, obviously, he's not up for re-election in 2018, uh, but he doesn't want to lose the Republican majority. And not that he's been able to accomplish much with it, but obviously it'd be so much harder if he lost it. Uh, so everybody wants the market to go up. So we are going to get a tax cut. But that pretty much assures that we're going to get a huge increase in budget deficits and the national debt. They've already cleared the way now in the Senate, and the House is about to rubber stamp it some way, that the Republicans are allowed to reduce revenue to the federal government by $1.5 trillion uh, in their tax cut over the 10 years. So it's not $1.5 trillion a year. It's only $150 billion a year over 10 years. That amounts to $1.5 trillion. But of course, remember, government spending is going to rise substantially over those 10 years. So the government actually needs a lot more revenue in order to cover all its spending uh, plans. Uh, so when you reduce the revenue, you just further accelerate the, the growing budget deficits and the resulting national debt that is the sum total of all the prior budget deficits. And the problem, of course, for Republicans, you've got a number of Republicans who were very hawkish about the debt. We don't want to add to the debt 
And when Obama was president, they were, you know, we're going to shut down the government. We're not going to raise the debt ceiling. They demanded fiscal discipline. In fact, there was some compromise and there was some modicum of discipline imposed on the budget. All that is now being unraveled under Trump so that the Republicans can throw out whatever discipline that they kind of forced into the system when Obama was president. And I've said this before, that when Republicans are in the minority, they can at least try to exert some pressure on government spending. But the minute they have both houses of Congress and the White House, precedent shows that you know they don't care about the deficit. The deficit is only a problem when they are in the minority. But when they have the power, then they don't care about it because they want a tax cut and deficits be damned, right? We're going to cut taxes, especially since the market now depends on it. Nobody wants to stand in the way of the market. In fact, even Rand Paul, who was like the one Republican who voted against the budget resolution in the Senate, right? Because he didn't want to vote for a big increase in the national debt. He's already said that he will, in fact, vote for the tax cuts. He just didn't want to vote for the budget bill to enable the tax cuts. But somehow now that that budget bill has been enacted, he is going to vote for the tax cuts because as far as he's concerned, you know, he wants he always wants to cut taxes if that is the choice, uh, regardless of the impact on the national debt. He'd rather have people pay lower taxes and deal with the consequences, which are higher inflation, uh, higher interest rates, some combination of the of the two. But there is no free lunch. That is the problem with these tax cuts. Taxes support government. And if you cut taxes and you don't cut government, then where is the support for government coming from? Now, some of the Republicans are going to argue it's going to come from growth. See, we're going to cut taxes and we're going to get all this growth that will exceed the tax cuts. Well, then let's have bigger tax cuts. You know, it's the same nonsense when it comes to the, the minimum wage. Right. They'll say, well, you know, if we raise it too high, they'll claim, OK, maybe a hundred dollar minimum wage, two hundred dollars. Yeah, maybe we'll get some unemployment, but, you know, we can raise it to 15 bucks and no problem. Right. It's a problem no matter how high you raise it. I mean, if it were true that cutting taxes produced higher tax revenue, well, then let's have an even bigger tax cut. I mean, you know, then we'd have even more revenue. Hell. Let's just eliminate taxes completely. Well, then obviously, if you eliminate it completely, you don't get any revenue at all because you have no taxes. Uh, but if the idea is that whenever you cut taxes, as long as you still have some positive rate, that the growth is going to be so massive that you're going to make up the difference by collecting more at a lower rate, then lower the taxes even more. Right? The, the, the fact of the matter is it doesn't happen. And if you cut taxes and you don't cut government spending, then you simply have to find a less efficient way to pay for all that government. Because government is still getting more expensive. We're not getting it for free. And if we're not going to pay for it with taxes, well, there's some other way we're going to pay for it, right? If you could have government and not taxes, then why even have taxes, right? Just print money and everything will be fine. You can't do that. And so the tax cuts are not going to produce the growth, but we're going to have them anyway because now the Republicans have boxed themselves into a corner. Now, they're still trying to figure out how to reduce the impact on the deficit, because one of the things that the Trump administration had floated was, well, let's get rid of the deduction for state and local income taxes. Well, that's already a deal killer. In fact, Trump himself has backed out on that when somebody pointed out to him that there are middle-class taxpayers that take those deductions. 
And he acted like he was hearing that for the first time, as if only the super rich deduct their state and local taxes. No, anybody who itemizes deducts their state and local taxes. And so it seems like that, that's gone. And over the weekend, they floated another trial balloon on limiting the amount that you can contribute to your 401k and get a tax deduction in the year of the contribution. I mean, right now it's, I don't know, what, 12, 13, 14,000. I forget the exact number that you can contribute. And they were talking about lowering it down to like 2,600 or something, the level of, a, of an IRA. And uh, that was like the Hindenburg. I mean, everybody, you know, was shooting that thing down or it was blown up on its own. And Trump already came out and said, nope, uh-uh, we're not going to touch that tax deduction. The one thing I've heard that I think will happen to get this done in a way that is politically the most palatable and plays a little bit of lip service to the, um, the debt is to not lower the top rate. See, right now the top rate, not counting the Obamacare tax, but right now the top rate is 39.9. So all the Republicans have to do is not cut that rate. So leave the 39.9% rate there. So instead of having three brackets of 12, 25, and 35, you have 12, 25, 35, and, and, and 39.6, right? That way there is no tax cut for the, the rich. And that would do a lot more in, in, in selling this, this plan because it wouldn't be marketed as a tax cut for the rich. I mean, even though technically the rich do get a cut in that, let's say they, they uh, have the top bracket kick in at a million dollars, right? So the rich are right now paying uh, 39.6% on everything they earn, right, above 400 and something thousand. If you move that up to a million, then obviously the rich are still going to get a tax cut on the amount of money that they earn below a million, right? On their first million, they're going to get a tax cut. They just won't get a tax cut on all the millions they earn on top of that. So in a way, the Republicans can still say we're cutting everybody's taxes because they will be, because even people making $10 million a year, even though their marginal rate hasn't been reduced, they'll still pay a little bit less because they're going to have a little bit lower tax on that first million. But it will do a little bit in limiting the impact on the budget deficit. And politically, they won't be able to talk about how, you know, all this, all this benefit are going to the billionaires because their benefits are going to be capped at that first million. And then beyond that, they, they won't have a benefit. So I have a feeling that this is what is going to happen. I mean, some, there's some talk that they might actually raise that fourth bracket above 39.9, maybe 40 or higher. I don't think they want to do that because they, they don't want to raise anybody's taxes. But I think just not cutting taxes on incomes above a certain level, I think will do a lot to make the bill sell better, especially since Trump has promised that he doesn't want to cut taxes for the rich. So at least if he if he does that, then he can claim he kept that promise. And it really is a tax cut for the middle class or you know even the upper middle class, but just not the, the 1%. But the problem that they're going to have if they do that is that they're reducing the, the tax rate on pass-throughs, and I've talked about this, to 25%. And so if you have the 39.6% bracket still there, well, that's an even bigger incentive for wealthy people uh, to be paid as a owner of an LLC. Although most people that earn a lot of money today, I would say the typical uh, guy or gal that earns over a million dollars a year in America does not do it on a salary. He's not getting a you know a ten uh, a, a W two for a million dollars a year. I bet most of the people that earn that much money or more 
are earning their money as owners of a an LLC. Right? Take a, take a you know an NBA basketball player. Maybe he's paid ten million dollars a year to play basketball. I doubt that he's doing it as a W two employee. He probably has a company set up, an LLC, and the the basketball team that he is working for, uh, you know, contracts with the LLC and it pays the LLC. And then the basketball player, uh, you know, runs all of his business expenses through the LLC, pays his sports agent or pays for his office that he has or with his staff, his secretary, his accountant, whatever it is. And then whatever's left over, he gets a, a dividend or pass a pass through. And right now it's, it's, it's taxed at whatever the, the income tax rate is. But if the pastor rate comes down to 25%, well, you know, that guy is going to be paying 25% on his $10 million uh, income. Now, I don't know if the Trump administration thinks an NBA player making $10 million a year should qualify as a small business. So I, they're going to have to have ways to prevent that NBA player from utilizing this 25% tax rate, which, again, to me, makes no sense. Because if Trump really wants to cut taxes for the small businessman. He doesn't have to do anything with the pass-through rate because the pass-through rate already taxes you based on your income. So for example, if a guy runs a dry cleaner and makes $35,000 a year running a dry cleaning, he has one uh, dry cleaner and he's a small business and he and he's not making a lot of money running that dry cleaner. Right now, I guess he'd pay taxes at that 12% rate based on whatever these new brackets are probably going to be. That would probably put him in the 12% bracket. Well, if the pass-through rate was 25%, he'd actually have to pay more than what he would if the pass-through rate was just the individual rate. Now, I don't know how they're planning on, on, on writing the legislation. Maybe the pass-through rate will say the maximum that you pay is 25%, so that maybe you'll pay 12% on your pass-through rate if you're only making 30000 or 40000 But as you make more, you potentially can be bumped into the 25% bracket, but that you're you know never going to be bumped into the the, the 35% bracket. So what they could do, what the president could do is simply make the same limit apply to pass-through income. So he could say, look, you know, you've got a pass-through rate of 25%, but it could be that if your income is a certain level, then no, it's whatever the individual income rate would be. And that would make it more of a small business, right, type of tax benefit because a lot of very big businesses, I mean, not big uh, as far as number of employees, but big as far as how much money the owners of those businesses earn because they operate them. You have a lot of small businesses where the owners are earning millions and millions of dollars, maybe tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars a year that are going to see a big drop in their taxes. Not that I'm against that. I'd love to see a big reduction in taxes, but I want to see a big reduction in government spending so that we can afford it. You know, But the, the crazy thing is, with all the talk about how are we going to pay for these tax cuts, right? And they always want to pay for the tax cuts with tax hikes, right? So what deduction can we eliminate? Nobody talks about paying for tax cuts the only real way that you pay for them, and that's with spending cuts. For some reason, reducing spending isn't even an option. I mean, nobody is saying, yeah, let's have a big tax cut, so let's figure out which government agencies we can get rid of so that we no longer have to pay for them. Let's relieve the taxpayers of the burden of having to pay for these agencies and departments. Or let's have across-the-board cuts. You know, let's reduce spending on the, uh, the military. Do we really need to spend this much money on the military? I mean, whose ass can't we kick? 
right? I mean, do we really need to spend more? No, let's spend less. There's all sorts of places that we can cut spending, right? I mean, no one's even talking about waste, fraud, and abuse. I mean, does no one even want to cut that anymore? Is that now sacrosanct? No, no, we need all the waste, fraud, and abuse. I mean, they can't find any savings in the budget that we got to keep spending more. And of course, you know, when they talk about cuts, when they start accusing, oh, the Republicans are cutting something, nothing is being cut. Sometimes they have small reductions to the rate of increase. But only in Washington is spending more considered a cut, right? If you are planning on, on, uh, on spending more, and then you still spend more, but not as much as you were planning, then somehow it's a cut. It's like, I, what if I told my employees, I went to my employee and said, hey, I'm going to give you a raise. And said, fantastic. How much are you going to increase my pay? Well, I'm not going to increase your pay. I'm going to cut your pay by 10%. But I was thinking about cutting it by 12%. But because I'm only cutting it by 10%, you got a 2% raise, right? I mean, that's basically what the government is trying to get us to buy when they try to tell us that they're cutting spending when they're simply not increasing it as much as they were initially planning. Well, if I tell my employees, hey, I'm not going to cut your salary by as much as I originally planned, they're still getting a pay cut. They're not going to buy my argument that it's a pay raise, because I was thinking of cutting it more, but then at the last minute I changed my mind, and so I'm not going to cut it as much, and I'm going to try to masquerade that smaller cut as, as a pay hike. So it shows you just you know how far the Republicans have moved from their positions when they actually held the reins of power when Obama was president. Oh yeah, we're fiscal hawks. We can't add to the deficit. We want less government. Well, now they actually have a chance to deliver less government, and they're all missing in action. Nobody wants to do it. Because they don't actually want to take it away. Look at how hard it was to repeal Obamacare. Even replacing it, they couldn't do it. Because somebody was going to lose a government benefit. And they like to talk about smaller government, except they don't want to deal with the fact that smaller government means somebody's not going to get a check from the government. And that person might not vote for them. Or just the politics of it, the campaigning, the ads. You know, you're taking this away. Somehow, you know, not voting to give somebody something is not as bad politically as taking away what they already have. Because it's almost like, you know, you're taking something, right? When once you, you, you create a government program, a government subsidy, right, where somebody gets something from the government, right? All of a sudden, if you want to reduce that, you're taking it away. But you're not actually taking it away. If I give you something and then I give you less, I'm not taking anything away from you because you didn't own it in the first place, right? That's like, you know, if a criminal is going to uh, rob you, and then somehow you, you're able to stop him from continuing to rob you, you're not taking anything away from the criminal. You're simply preventing the criminal from taking more away from you. You know, So if somebody was getting $1,000 a month on welfare that they didn't earn, right? So the government took $1,000 from somebody and gave it to somebody who was on welfare. And now that person has $1,000 that they didn't earn, that, they, that, that wasn't theirs, that was taken away from somebody else. And then if I lower taxes and then I reduce the welfare payment from $1,000 to $900, all of a sudden the way the media has, oh, you're taking $100 away from this poor welfare recipient. No, I'm not taking $100 away. He's still getting $900. So he's still, the guy on welfare is still taking $900 from the taxpayer. Is he taking $1,000? No, he's not taking as much as he used to. He's taking less, but he's still taking. The taxpayer is still paying for the person on welfare. He's just not having as much money taken away from him. But the way it is marketed politically is a redistribution. Money is being stolen from the poor, taken from the poor, and given to the rich, right? It's, it's not being given to the rich. 
It's just not being taken, right? We're just taking less. It's the welfare recipient who's being given less. But the way it looks on the polls or the way it spins politically, that's how it is, right? So you can be against giving somebody a brand new program. But once that program is in place, nobody will ever take it away because now you're taking something away from somebody that's theirs. And now you're a bad person. Now you're the Grinch. That's why every government program that's ever been created is still here. Every time there's a benefit, it never goes away. It's automatically permanent. And all the people who were opposed to it when they were creating it, you know, they, well, now, now, now they're opposed to getting rid of it, right? I mean, a lot of people who voted against Obamacare voted to keep it, right? right? But, I mean, look at all the Republicans way back when who were opposed to Social Security, who were opposed to Medicare. No, they're not opposed to it now. They all love it. There's not a single Republican probably who would vote straight up to get rid of Social Security. But there are a lot of Republicans who were against creating it in the first place. And, you know, same thing with any new government program. I mean, what about uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was created under George Bush? I went over, over and over again, how damaging that act is. All the problems that get created by the Americans with Disabilities Act. I mean, there were probably uh, some Republicans who were opposed to it, even though, uh, you know, Bush, you know, you know, signed it. But there were some Republicans that would have voted against that. I don't think any of those Republicans, if they're still around today... If anybody had the guts to repeal it, none of them would vote to repeal it. Because now that it's here, it's here for life, right? They've said nothing is as permanent as a temporary government program, right? We still have programs today that were created during the Great Depression, supposedly to help end the Depression. Well, the Depression is over, I I thought. So why do we still have these things? Same thing like taxes, right? I, I mentioned on this podcast before, the withholding tax was a victory tax imposed in 1943. It was a tax to help us win the Second World War. That's why it passed. That's why nobody opposed it. Who would oppose victory? All right, we have a new tax for victory in the war. Who's going to oppose this tax? Nobody's going to oppose it, especially since, you know, if you weren't fighting, I mean, how could you oppose uh, a tax for the troops who are fighting and dying and and you're at home, you're not even in the war, and you're going to object to paying some taxes? So we can have victory and bring the troops home. So nobody opposed it because it was a victory tax. All right, well, we won the war. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, we lost in that the victory tax is still here. We're still paying the withholding tax. You know, the telephone excise tax, that tax, when you pay your phone bill and you get a federal tax, that was also part of the victory tax. We had telephones before 1943. We just didn't have that federal tax. Came in to help us win the Second World War. All right, well, we won the war. Why don't they get rid of the tax? They never do. They keep adding taxes, adding programs. Government gets bigger. Government gets bigger. More and more taxes. Every once in a while, they dangle these tax cuts in front of us. But the tax cuts that we're going to get, and I do believe we're going to get something, it's going to be a tax cut. It's not going to be as big as for the upper end. They're going to find ways to limit these deductions for the higher earners. But they may open up a huge can of worms that the, uh, the tax lobby will exploit as far as the loopholes that they're going to leave to enable people to reclassify their income out of 39.6% down to 25%. We'll see how big a loophole they leave there. But believe me, if they leave anything, people are going to find a way to get through it. But whatever we get from these tax cuts is simply a down payment on a tax hike. That's all it is. It just means we're going to cut taxes now so we can raise taxes later. And this is not the way to cut taxes because... The, the cost of government is measured by what it spends, not by what it taxes. And any tax cuts we have now 
It's just a down payment on a tax hike later. And if we don't get the tax hike, we're going to pay even more because we're going to have higher interest rates, higher inflation, or a combination of both. Now, I know a lot of people think, well, look, you know, we've had these huge increase in deficits over the past eight years. And look, interest rates are really low, right? So it doesn't matter how big the deficits are. It's never going to make interest rates go up. All right, then fine. Let's then cut taxes even more. If it doesn't matter how big the deficits are, then, you know, go for 30 trillion, go for 40 trillion. If it doesn't matter, obviously it matters, right? Otherwise, you know, we, we wouldn't have to have taxes at all. The question is, when will the magnitude of deficits force interest rates higher? It's going to happen eventually, and then they're going to skyrocket. But the only way the federal government can stop that from happening is massive money printing, right? If they want to, if they want to really crank up the presses with QE4, they want to keep on buying bonds, yes, they can keep interest rates down longer, but then eventually the dollar will implode and we'll have a currency crisis, and then interest rates go through the roof unless they print even more money and then the dollar goes to zero. So at some point, this is going to come back and bite us, and all the people who think they're getting a tax cut are going to end up getting a big bill, whether it's higher future taxes, higher interest rates on all the money they borrowed, or higher inflation. Everything they need to buy is going to cost more money. So yes, you'll have a bigger paycheck in that the government will take less money out of it. But then when you go to spend your paycheck on stuff, you're going to end up with less stuff. Because even though you have more money, the money you have buys less stuff. So in the end, taxpayers are going to end up with lower purchasing power, even with the tax cuts, because our politicians did not have the guts to cut spending when they cut taxes. They just want to give up a free lunch. This is the Republicans' version of a free lunch. The Republicans always want to accuse the Democrats of promising the voters something for nothing when they talk about you know, government programs. Well, Republicans do the same thing when it talks about tax cuts. We're going to cut taxes and we're not going to cut any spending, right? Their Democrats are like, well, we're going to give you all these new programs without telling how they're going to pay for it. Well, the Republicans are going to deliver all kinds of tax cuts without telling how they're going to make government smaller so we can actually afford these cuts. Hey, I wanted to uh, wind up this podcast, talk a little bit more again about Bitcoin, which has uh, moved uh, through another milestone over the weekend. We were trading above 6,000. I think we got close to 6,200. Not sure if we got above it. There's so many different exchanges. It's hard for me to keep track. I know as I'm recording now, we're about 5,900. We did get back down to almost 5,600 during the day. So again, the volatility continues, but the direction is clearly up. I would put the support now around 5,000. That used to be resistance. So at this point, 5,000 or so, or maybe just below, is the support uh, in the market right now. But there was some selling intraday. And then you had a billionaire uh, Saudi prince, Al Alweed, was talking. I guess he was, I'm not sure where he was speaking. I saw some of his comments on CNBC. And they were asking the guy a lot of questions about a lot of things. And obviously, you know, he's pretty influential because he oversees an enormous amount of money. You've got all the kingdoms, uh, oil revenues coming in. And so he's got a lot of money to invest and he has a huge portfolio, big shareholder. He owns a lot of U.S. stocks as well. And he was asked about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Pretty pretty much everybody now. I mean, whenever somebody is interviewed, no matter who it is, they've got to get their opinion on Bitcoin. You know, where do you stand, pro or con? And, of course, the Saudi prince was very negative. He said it was an Enron in the making. I don't understand it. I think it's going to crash. And I think what's interesting, though, about the Saudi prince's criticism is what he points out as being the problems are exactly the benefits that the people who are buying 
uh, see in the currency, at least a lot of the people who are buying it because they really believe in it. I mean, at this point, there's lots of people who are just buying it because it's going up. So they don't really have any other allegiance to other than the fact that it's going up, right? I mean, there have been few investments that have delivered the type of returns that you've had in cryptocurrencies. I mean, these have been the biggest gainers. And so there's a lot of money now, whether it's hedge fund money or just little, you know, little kids. I, I forget if I mentioned, but over the weekend, my son's 15-year-old friend for the first time put $600 into, uh, into Bitcoin. Um, now, I don't think he's a financial genius. I don't even know if he understands what's going on. Maybe he does. I don't know. I mean, there's some smart 15-year-olds out there. But a lot of people, 15-year-olds who have 600 bucks and hedge fund guys who are managing uh, billions of other people's money, they all want to go where the action is. And right now, the action is in the cryptocurrency. So there are some people that are in there because they actually believe uh, that this is a game changer and they believe in all of the libertarian free market aspects of these cryptos. And then you got people that think, look, I don't care. I just want to be in and out and make some money, right? And so they're there. So everybody is being asked where they stand. But he's saying, look, I don't like it. It's crazy. You know, there's no central bank. You know, there's there's no regulation. And these are the flaws that he perceives. And this is exactly why people want it. Yes, I don't want the Federal Reserve involved. I don't want a central bank. I don't want regulation. So, I mean, as far as the prince is concerned, that's why he doesn't want it. And of course, when your typical Bitcoin buyer hears this, it's like, oh, perfect. This validates, you know, he's afraid. He's, he's part of the status quo, right? I mean, you know, now somehow... The prince and I agree, right? We're both on the same side of the Bitcoin argument, but for very different reasons. I like the aspects. The things that the prince doesn't like, those are the things I like about it, right? I just I just don't think it's going to work for other reasons. And everybody who's listening to this podcast knows by now the reasons that I don't think that Bitcoin is going to work. In fact, I did a debate earlier today. My my Canadian firm, Echelon, had, had set this up. They, I think the guy's Canadian, I'm not sure, but he wanted to do kind of a debate. It was live on his website or his Facebook page, but it was like an hour discussion, debate, Bitcoin, gold, you know, what's better or is Bitcoin going to work? And so, but I mean, you can, you can uh, listen to that if you could figure out where it is. But the people on my podcast know all the reasons that I just don't think that it's going to work as money. I just don't think it's going to succeed as a store of value. And, and since it's, it's not going to work as money, uh, then ultimately it's going to fail. It's not going to deliver what is promised. But in the meantime, it's a speculative asset and everybody is gambling as to whether or not they think it's going to be a success. But I disagree with a lot of the things that Jamie Dimon said about the cryptocurrency, that the prince is saying, but we agree on ultimately what's going to happen to it and that I think it's going to collapse, and I think a lot of these other fiat uh, digital currencies are also going to collapse. But, you know, it's interesting that these guys never really hit upon the reasons that I do. Although it is interesting that a lot of the people who support Bitcoin and they argue that it can work because they say, well, you know, fiat currencies have no uh, intrinsic value. They're basically worthless. And so they work. And so since they work, well, the cryptocurrencies can work. And I argue that, well, they don't really work well because they've lost value over time. And as a result, we've had a transfer of wealth. We've had this big, you know, divide between the rich and the poor. We have asset bubbles. We have malinvestments. I think we don't have as vibrant an economy. I don't think we have nearly as high a standard of living as we would have if we were operating under a gold standard. So it doesn't work well, but it works, you know, it works for government. I mean, certainly government likes the situation that they have. But that is a way, if you're going to look at why I think 
dollars and euros and yen can at least succeed superficially, where I think these cryptocurrencies can't, is because you do have that government infrastructure uh, backing it up. Even though there's no real value there, you do have that to back it up. And that's something that, that the cryptocurrencies don't have. I mean, right now you have buying because people think they can get rich. And so you have buyers. There's no shortage of buyers now. But that can easily turn around when the people who have been buying try to cash out. And, you know, when the people who have been buying want to cash out, there needs to be another group of buyers willing to get in. And if they're not there, if you run out of buyers, if you run out of new layers, right, that's why I, I look at it as a pyramid scheme or a Ponzi scheme. You run out of new people, right? If all the people with millions and billions in Bitcoins, you know, if they want to buy stuff, they want to buy houses and planes and yachts and whatever it is they want to buy, somebody's got to be willing uh, to sell them those things for Bitcoin and not turn around and sell the Bitcoin themselves. I mean, Bitcoin is going to have to ultimately be money. Right. There's going to have to be, you know, for Bitcoin to go to a million dollars of Bitcoin, right, wherever people think it's going to be. I mean, pretty much the whole world is going to have to use it as money and dollars and euros and yen are basically going to be worth nothing. Right. And that in that environment, because, you know, what are you going to be able to buy with that? If everybody who's selling stuff wants to get paid in Bitcoins and no one wants to get paid in in dollars or, or, or euros. But I think, you know, long before it gets to that point, you'll have enough people wanting to cash out. And at some point, there won't be enough people there to take them out. There won't be enough new money coming in. Because again, as the prices go higher and higher, you need more and more money to maintain that price level. So it becomes harder and harder. But yes, now, I mean, you know, you've got all this money flowing in, all this new speculative money that just can't get enough of it because they look in the rearview mirror and they want to jump in on the returns. But the dynamic is going to look very different uh, when you start to see the reverse. In fact, one of these things this guy was telling me on the, that I was debating with, he was talking about how the millennials really like cryptocurrencies better than gold, you know, because, you know, it's really easy and, you know, it doesn't take up any space. And, and like I'm saying, look, you know, gold doesn't actually take up much space. But I think one of the reasons millennials really like it is because it's going up. They like it because they're making money, right? That's what they like about it. I think you get a 90% correction like, you know, like we had when it went from 1,000 down to, you know, 200. That was maybe an 80% correction. I don't think the millennials are going to like it so much. You know, I, you know, and I know a lot of the true believers have told me, yeah, I'll just buy more if it goes down 90%. And I'm sure there are some of you who will. There are some true believers that will. But there's a lot of people that aren't true believers. There's a lot of people that just got in to catch the ride. A lot of people just got in to make money. And believe me, they're going to be disillusioned when this thing collapses and their sure thing, you know, has gone down 80 90%. They're going to sell out. Right. And then they're, they're not going to buy it again. Right. They're not going to be fooled the second time. They're, you know, they're not going to get suckered into the same thing again. They're going to lick their wounds. And, you know, a lot of them are going to complain to government. You know, who knows the next big move down? I mean, what kind of regulation that might spark? You know, because whenever people lose money, you know, that's a political cause that somebody's going to champion because it helps get them votes. And, oh, they care about the little guy. So but anyway, I just wanted to mention uh, that, of course, you know, so far, every time some major personality comes out and says something negative about Bitcoin, it normally rises. <laughs> so, you know, we'll see. We'll see if, you know, we end up getting a Saudi prince bump and we move from 6,000 to 7,000 or wherever we're going to go on Bitcoin. And again, you know, he the guy was telling me, you know, why are you telling why aren't you encouraging people to buy? Look, I'm not going to encourage people to gamble. People can make their own decisions if they want to gamble. Right. Because, hey. Bitcoin can go to ten thousand, can go to twenty thousand, can go to thirty thousand, can go to can go to a thousand, can go to a hundred, can go to zero, right? So it's a gamble. Either way, you decide. The momentum is there, right? So I would say on any given day, it's more likely to go up than down. On any given day, if you buy the dip, you'll make money until you don't. 
right? That's the thing. You don't know when your luck is going to run out. And so, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're playing with fire, you know, if you're doing it. Now, so far, no one's getting burned. Everybody's, everybody's, this is great. I'm playing with fire, but, you know, it's not burning me. Well, at some point, people are going to get burned, and I don't want to encourage people to do something if I know they're ultimately going to get burned, right? When the music stops, if you're holding the bag, if you're not, if you're not, in, a, if you're not in a chair, you're out of luck. So people can decide on their own if they want to play the game, and they have to decide on their own when they get out. The only advice I've been telling people is if you do have profits, take some, right? Don't, don't leave the entire bet on the table, right? Play with the house's money and take your own money and, and do something safe with it. You know, like, uh, you know, invest, you know, invest with me or invest in gold or, you know, I mentioned in this company, uh, gold money, which I think is an excellent play. Again, I can't give stock advice uh, on this uh, podcast, but talk to one of my brokers because, you know, there are ways to benefit from cryptocurrencies. There are ways to have to invest in businesses that will profit from the crypto bubble if it continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And if it never pops, well, then the profits will continue to grow. But I think I'm, I think we got a situation with this company where we profit from the bubble and then we profit more when the bubble pops. Because I think gold is going to be the primary beneficiary of the collapse of the crypto bubble. Because I think a lot of people who have made the movement from fiat to crypto will ultimately make the movement from crypto back to gold. I mean, they should have gone to gold all along. That's where they should have been. But they got sidetracked by the allure of all the easy money being made in the cryptos. But again, I've said this before, the people who have jumped from fiat to cryptos have gone from the frying pan into the fire. They just don't know it yet, right? And when they find out, when the heat gets turned up and, you know, and then now they're going to really try to get out of the fire, they're going to come home to gold. (laughs) 